Okay, today uh, my guest is Professor and Dean Stephanie Lanway. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with her. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Stephanie as a person, Professor Lanway is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of her accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Stephanie Lanway is the Dean at University of St. Thomas, Previously, she was the Dean at University of Michigan and then the University of Illinois at Chicago. Professor Lanway is an AIB fellow and was a member of the Board of Governance of the Academy of Management. She served as a chair of the AOM's Social Issues in Management Division, as a vice president, program chair of the AIB, and is an associate editor of JIBS. She has written many academic articles on strategic management, politics, economics, in our top journals, as well as books on international trade policy and global knowledge formation. Thank you, Dean Lanway, for joining us. Thank you, Il guys. Uh, let me just make one small correction. I was Dean of the Broad College at Michigan State University. Thank you. Where AIB Secretariat is housed, so I had the pleasure of working with the AIB team Thank when you. I was there. So, uh, Stephanie, what did you want to become when you were a child? Well, first I thought of being a veterinarian because I, in California, there's a, something called the University of Davis Picnic, right? and they have a big vet school at Davis. So I thought, I saw the animals and everything, I became fascinated. But then I decided I wanted to be an astronaut. astronaut. <laughs> And I watched all the rockets. I'd get up in California. You had to get up at four o'clock in the morning because they took off from Florida. At, you know, it's sunrise. So I watched the rockets go into space. Uh, but my eyes aren't very good. So um, I figured that probably wasn't a fruitful career path. So in high school, I settled on becoming a political scientist. I, I almost got there, but. So uh, what made you choose academia? And then within yeah. academia, a particular area, IIB? So I grew up in, not in Berkeley, but right next to Berkeley. So the University of California was a fixture in my life. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my parents' friends were academics. And it just seemed like there was always something to do. And my father was a metals trader. And sometimes he'd come home and he'd say, I couldn't think of anything to do today. I mean, you know, the markets were flat or it just, there were political conflicts, whatever. But so I thought, well, in academics, there's always, I'll never get bored. So uh, I started it in political science and political theory, but there really wasn't a market for political theorists. There still really isn't. Um, there are only one or two at research universities and they usually stay. Uh, so I ended up going from UCLA back to Berkeley and found myself in the business school. Hmm. And I never left. It's, it's been awesome. I'm so lucky I found myself in the business school at Berkeley. Uh, what's something not many people would know about you? Uh, something that you wouldn't put on your CV? 
Well, in college, I briefly thought about becoming a musician. I'm a double bass player, and I studied with a double bass player in the San Francisco or Symphony Orchestra. And I practiced four hours a day for a couple of years. And uh, I thought, oh, that would be interesting. But then I was a musician as a summer job for a couple of years where I was in undergraduate school. And, you know, it, it didn't seem like a career. It, you know, I could master everything, but uh, I couldn't see a future or the future would have been in the San Jose Symphony Orchestra, which is not bad, but it's not great. And now I think seriously, I go to the Minnesota Orchestra and I look at the bass section and the first two bass players are women. And I think, I don't think I could be there with them. So, so but I, I did play bass through the beginning of graduate school at Berkeley and it was good. If you stop doing what you're doing today, what's the second best uh, career path, alternative path for you? So it turns out a lot of my work on trade policy and knowledge creation focuses on supply chains. And I've talked to a lot of managers and you know, uh, executives involved in supply chain management and strategy. And I think they really have a lot of fun. They make friends, you know, different parts of the supply chain come together. They know each other, they know each other's families and they're always trying to figure out how to make things work. So I think it could have been fun. I have some alums who are in supply chain at Best Buy and they travel or they used to travel and they make friends all over the world. And it seems like that would be a pretty fun career. It would be. So, yeah. so uh, regrets, have you got any regrets? Oh gosh. You know, part of the reason I became a dean was so I wouldn't have any regrets. So I wouldn't have thought, yeah, isn't that weird? <laughs> Um, you know, I've been through some difficult political situations and somehow I landed on my feet. So I could feel bad about them, but I don't. I just go on and try to do the best I can wherever I end up. I don't know. It's a funny answer to your question, but I did face a decision at one point. Should I just keep my corner office and my chaired professorship? Or should I just put all put some clothes in, in my car and drive to Chicago? And I just ended up being all of the security I had at the University of Minnesota and and driving to Chicago for a big adventure with my husband. And I yeah, it was hard, but I never regretted doing it. Interesting. On this question, actually the, the uh the people I talk to are quite split. Uh, some are, yeah, they are full of regrets and they say it's impossible not to feel regrets, especially if you've lived, uh, you know, a full life. Yeah. And then other people say, right, absolutely, it, it means nothing, that there should be no regrets and I'm quite happy with uh, every decision I made. So it's uh, exposed justification. It's, 
quite interesting. I, I mean, I'm taking notes as we, as, as we speak, but um, I find this question quite informative, actually. I mean, I could have a lot of regrets. The political situation, as you may know, at Michigan State University was not great, uh, especially in retrospect after I left. But I learned a lot. I made friends. I got to work with the, with the secretariat. I got to learn a lot about supply chain. And I, you know, spent time in India uh, with our partner at SP James. And it was hard. And still, you know, it was, there were a lot of good things that happened. I think I could focus on the bad things and say that was a terrible decision. Who should have gone to Michigan during the economic crisis when all the auto companies were imploding and the supply chains were com coming unglued. Mm -hmm. But I just drove on 94, you know, going east. Uh, <laughs> Interesting decision. Uh, what are you most proud of? Oh, gosh. Well, as you say, my doctoral students, Doug Schuler, Jennifer Spencer, Susan Feinberg, you know, have had distinguished careers and that's, that's, that's a great feeling. Uh, my book on managing new industry creation with Tom Bertha and Jeff Hart was a really interesting project funded by the Sloan Foundation where we went around the world tracking uh, knowledge in uh, the manufacture of flat panel displays and ultimately thin film transistors. Uh, so, and, you know, my family is, my son is, during the pandemic has settled down to study economics uh, and, you know, is looking at business school and uh, Tom Murtha, my husband is really getting into writing poetry and he's finding that the poet business is, maybe rougher than business, business school business. <laughs> so, you know, everybody's doing, doing okay. And it's not been easy to do okay the past few years. Perfect. So, uh, Stephanie, now uh, let's, let's switch to talking about research. Uh, if you're stranded in a pub and people are curious about you, what do you say? How do you explain your research to people who don't read your work regularly? And why oh. your research is important. What I do, I don't know if you could see it, is I take out my iPhone. And I say, do you see this screen? Do you know what it took to make it? And then talk about uh, the history of the screen, how the knowledge was at RCA in New Jersey and got bought uh, by Toshiba in Japan. And then they started uh, with watches and calculators. I mean, and I have an Apple watch, but the first watches with LCD screens were, couldn't read your email. You couldn't read your email. It was just numbers. Mm -hmm. And then uh, how the equipment made the screens bigger and then the first applications were uh, portable computers, laptop computers. And, and then when people least expected it, these screens exploded and became televisions and desktops. 
you know, and now we're ubiquitous in train stations and everywhere and how it took, you know, a chemical vapor deposition machines to lay down the, the thin film transistors and then, uh, you know, very thin glass to, mm -hmm. to protect them. And then all the electronics and everybody had to work together from all over the world. And then we get these wonderful uh, products, which I don't know about you, but if I didn't have this, I would be in big trouble because it's a platform, you know, I can read the newspaper. I can read my mail. I can call my family. I can, you know, we could do this interview on this phone. And it's just everybody coming together, sharing ideas from all over the world that made this possible. And if companies, we started studying just US companies and uh, if they just relied on US knowledge, uh, they failed. So. Uh, Interesting, uh, Stephanie, in your opinion, what are some of the omitted or neglected areas of research in IB. Um, things that we should have covered more or we should be covering more going forward. You know, I think at least my approach is to look at contemporary problems in the world. I mean, I fell onto uh, liquid crystal displays and other flat panel technologies because of trade policy and uh, Clinton administration, Laura Tyson was putting together a industrial policy to support uh, domestic display manufacturers to make them competitive. And, you know, I watched it and saw it sort of fail. And then I saw the global companies succeed. So that was interesting. And today I would look at, well, first digital platforms and how that's changing uh, production, how we and how we work, where we work, uh, all the analytics that allows you to uh, sort of learn from the future, and then all the different immersive technologies that allow data to go everywhere and people to pretty much, you know communicate virtually. So I think international business is really changing. I mean, even you see these, you know, political stalemates between the US and China and, you know, over supply chains. Uh, people are talking freely. I, you know, I can reach anybody anywhere in the world. So I think knowledge exchange and how that's managed is gonna become more important and other things may not move. I mean, you can see uh, the beginning of trends for uh, production to stay more local. Mm -hmm. And that might lead to a whole new theory of international business because we've always gone somewhere either to get raw materials or to exploit markets or, uh, you know, to set up affiliates. But we've even, I've done a lot of work with 3M. You know, these innovation centers 
in different parts of the world haven't perfected the ability to come together and in sort of one co cohesive knowledge network. Uh, Stephen, I, I want to follow up on what you just said about the new theory of IB. Uh, and uh, from your window, how did the culture of IB scholarship change or evolve over time? And uh, knowing or accounting for where we were, uh, how can you, uh, can you make a prediction about where we are headed and what's the new IB theory is going to be well, what is it going to look like? Yeah, I, you know, that could be a conference. Maybe it should be a conference. But, you know, I think back to the giants in IB, uh, Ray Vernon. Uh, well, and all the people, uh, Buckley and Canson, Yahir Aharoni, you know, who sort of wrote the seminal books from which we drew theory and ideas, and they were, and you know, Prahalat and Doz and Bartlett and Goshala, and they were mainly based on interviews and, and qualitative research. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's where people would travel, they would, they would, you know, go to different parts of the world and talk to people in companies. And then, Next, in the 90s, early 90s, I'd go to AIB, and the papers were very, very technical, uh, highly methodological, and based on vast quantities of data. And, and that was published. It was published as, you know, not only in JIDS, but in Strategic Management Journal. And people built very, very uh, successful careers. And now, I mean, I did look and while I was thinking about our conversation, the 50th anniversary of Jib's Changing the World, how IB research makes a difference, which is important. You know, how does IB research affect something like uh, how managers think about what to do or how governments think about what to, or NGOs think about what to do? And it's not as, I mean, there's data in this, and there was data in, if you look at the very first issues of JIBS, there was, you know, people collected data there too. But there's also, you can understand uh, the problems by reading the paper. You, you, you don't have to go and study methodology to figure out where the hypo why the hypotheses were set up the way they were and what they were actually finding. So maybe, you know, research is coming back to a focus on practice, which gets us back to talking to people. And if you talk about omitted variables, sometimes I think people get lost in the numbers because people don't fit into numbers. The psychology, the struggle of making decisions or, you know, culture, you know, transcending cultures, all that. It's, it's not always easy. And you put a number on it and, and you, you, you know, it, you collapse that whole experience. Uh, and I, uh, you know, this whole thing of coming together virtually and working 
you know, in more confined geographic spaces could change the way we think about the multinational and, you know, firm specific advantages, country specific advantages, and everything's becoming so knowledge oriented. I think it'd be interesting to see how we can meld knowledge again, you know, all the knowledge that went into making these displays. Oh, and this is a organic liquid crystal display. It's not a thin film transistor display. The resolution is better. So that could be, you know, the whole digitization of work could have an impact on, uh, on international business theory. And I look at Accenture a lot and they talk about learning from the future from data and, you know, bringing production to where you are and immersive experiences. Uh, that's those frameworks from people working to help companies uh, with digital transformation may be a useful way to start to look at what's changing. Again, in my career, I've really looked at what's going on in the world. Like why are the supply chains so clogged, you know, in Long Beach and the Suez and all that? I mean, what are the dynamics and then what has to change to make things sustainable because the price of containers is, you know, has gone up a thousand percent. I know this from my student at Best Buy who is bringing in uh, all the electronics for the Christmas season. He had to bet on what would be possible, but another, you know, going forward, I think these supply chains are gonna have to reconfigure to be competitive. Interesting. I mean, uh, you're right. Uh, today I was reading something about supply chain uh, blockages and that there are some limitations to it. And it seems like most of it is artificial or man-made limitations. So I'm thinking uh, my training is economics. Uh, it shouldn't exist. These uh, imperfections shouldn't exist or be sustaining their imperfections so, uh, so long. Is exactly my point. It's uh, yeah. oh well. Uh, oh, is it people? Is it human error? Is it uh, hubris? Or <laughs> is it just we've got to figure out a different algorithm True. To, True. to make it work? Uh, Stephen, for the sake of time, I would like to switch gears to mentoring and uh, advice portion, uh, if it's okay with you. Uh, what was the best advice you received when you were going through the program yourself? Uh, my, my doctoral program. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, to do interesting work, to do work that you're curious about. You know, nobody ever said, here's the literature, read it and find a dissertation topic. It was like, what are you interested in? And then, oh, here's some, here's some books that might help you place it so, so you can connect with other people. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's back to, I pick phenomenon and then find theory to, uh, to sort of explain it. 
but I don't, I'm not really driven by the literature to think of what's interesting. And, and I have to say that's posed challenges in my career because if you pick the literature, then you're in a citation stream and you can cite people, they cite you, and then you build your citation counts and then you become famous and get raises and, and research appointments. Uh, I mean, you're in a unique position. Uh, you've been a very active researcher. You've, uh, you're at the very top of the research uh, profile for a very long time, and then you went into deanship. You, you were the initiate. So you have a unique position to, to actually answer this differently than most people. Um, in your opinion, what are the most common mistakes that junior faculty or young scholars, uh, patient students uh, make um, at, uh, at the early stages of their career? Things what they shouldn't be doing, some of them. It's hard because, you know, I present tenure cases to the promotion and tenure committee of everybody in my co everybody going up. And, you know, some, okay, one mistake. I, what makes it hard for me to make a case? If, if your research stream is scattered and there's no linkage among the papers that you're writing and it looks opportunistic, that's a very hard case to make because, you know, reviewers don't know your work because, you know, you've only done a couple of things in, in any given area. You don't have citations. And uh, it's just, there's nothing, I like to tell a story about what is the contribution, the impact of this scholar, the scholar's work. Mm -hmm. So the, Committee, because I think stories are, uh, you know, stay with you. I have a hundred. I, I have a thousand percent success rate, so this works. Uh, the other thing is, I think sometimes people are perfectionists, and and you don't need to be. That's why we have the review process. You're not in it alone. Uh, people engage with your ideas and try to make them better. For the most, I mean, ideally. So there's that, and there's other. There's the other thing that comes up is the question of uh, who do you work with, and you know, the easiest way to make a case is if somebody works with two or three other people, so you can see that they contribute. If you only have one co-author, it's hard to know who's doing what. Uh, and you can both vouch for each other, but still, uh, if there's if there's two or three co-authors, I think it's easier to make a case that this person is chosen as a partner for because they because they do their part. Uh, I think also you know you you can't take on the world. Uh, before you get tenure. I think the scope of the problems that junior faculty take on need to be somewhat confined. So you can actually finish one in two or three years because some of these projects take a long time. And I think going forward, you know, there might, we're not physics or uh, astronomy, you know, physics, 
uh, papers like have a hundred co-authors. But we might think about putting together teams. I think Peter Buckley does this. In some ways, I love teams. I love my leadership team at St. Thomas. I mean, it's kept me going. We keep each other going. And I think research teams can be like that too if, uh, if there's a good understanding of the division of labor, of labor and uh, you know, leadership. Uh, I just wonder if, because international business is so complex and we can't all bring every discipline to bear, because now with all the digitization, you need computer scientists, you, you know, and knowledge management people, and and strategic management people, and economists to look at a to look at a phenomenon. I, I just I just wonder if more team based work could be an interesting way of solving or understanding some of the big changes that are coming. Maybe 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, uh, it would take one or two people to publish in AMR, AMJ, SMJ. Now I'm looking at uh, new papers, it's uh, six or seven Yeah, people. so it is, because, you know, it's yeah. just the problems are, are more complex. And one thing, you know, I've had to recognize in my work is because we started with a problem of, you know, where's, where's the... You, where's the U.S. in display manufacturing? Uh, we used, you know, many different theories or at least drew on them. But then, you know, we've got this book, very happy, it's, it's 20 years old, I can't believe it. Uh, and to, can, can you read the name because, uh, because of the background? Yeah. Uh, it erases it. Yeah, managing new industry creation, global knowledge formation and entrepreneurship and high technology. Thank you. So it could have been entrepreneurship, it could have been decision science, it could have been international related. But, you know, after this, I sort of, I became an associate dean and went on a different path. I think taking the data we collected for the book and matching it with literature would have been a good job, but it would have been a huge job. And, and that's what was necessary to, to get some of the, uh, I don't know, the data out in academic uh, outlets. And it, it felt very confining. Thank you. Uh, Stephanie, uh, what's the question that I should have asked you about heaven? So maybe, you know, why am I so stubborn and focus on phenomenon and not on the literature, which would have been a lot easier, uh, you know, to, to build my publication record? And I think the answer is because I wasn't trained to do that. You know, I, I was in the Berkeley program on business and public policy. It was before David Teese got there. So it was sort of law, economics, political science. I, my outside field was international relations. Uh, and so, and did some sociology. And so it just never occurred to me and, until I got to my first job at Washington University and they said, okay, what's your theory? Where's your data? 
you know. And I thought, oh, this is Midwest empiricism. But anyway. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, thank you so much for your time. I enjoyed well, this a lot. Uh, I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Thank you. It was delightful.